The Acrest Podcast. Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of The Acrest Podcast with me, Danny Lawler. If you're new to the show, do hit the subscribe button. If you like what you hear, don't be shy about hitting the like button too and sharing with your pals. For this episode of the Equest podcast, I'm joined by Giles Swan. Giles is a former regulator at the FCA in the UK and also a policy expert in all matters to do with investment funds and with financial markets more broadly. These days, he plies his trade as a consultant, consulting in those areas of funds and financial markets, but with a particular expertise around digitalization, tokenization, and the use of distributed ledger technology or blockchain. So on those fronts, we get into some very interesting and technical conversations around what the Funds 2030 review might look like if it really takes on to look at how digitalization might transform the industry uh, and how those pieces of tech could change what it is that we do, or at least how we deliver what we deliver. So very interesting conversation there. It is quite technical, but Jaws is pretty good at explaining stuff that's quite hard to understand in a way that's really uh, manageable and digestible. But we begin by uh, uh, me asking Giles about his impressions of the Irish funds industry, because I'm very interested to do that with somebody who knows the industry pretty well over here, but isn't local in the sense of he's not immersed in it uh, and maybe had a little bit of a remove, so doesn't have the same emotional connection that some of the, some of the rest of us do. So with that, hope you enjoy the show. Let's get on with the podcast. The Equest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, Giles. I'm delighted to have you on the Quest podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Danny. Appreciate it. Well, I was trying to think what your job title is, and I don't know. You better explain to us what it is that you do. Okay, well, I, I go by various different titles, I think. But um, my, my background is um, sort of 20 years in a mixture of uh, traditional finance or investment funds, working on the regulatory side and, and more recently um, in the sort of blockchain uh, arena. So I am a consultant in in both uh, those industries. I'm also the head of European policy at blockchain.com and I do various work for the uh, IOB in, in Dublin and on some of the investment fund courses. So um, I don't really know what title to give me, but hopefully that gives you a good feel. And you've uh, also spent time as a regulator, as a securities regulator with the FCA in the UK. So although you're not necessarily immersed in the Irish industry here, you're very familiar with it. I am indeed, yes. I spent several years as a, as a, a supervisor of the UK and also a, a policymaker uh, working on uh, on EU policy back in the days when uh, the UK was indeed part of the EU. Um, and I spent the last decade or so before joining blockchain.com working on uh, various investment fund policy uh, issues covering you know usits and uh, alternative investment funds so very familiar with the european industry and indeed with with the irish industry as well and you're also involved with the institute of bankers and you have a role there in terms of de- helping them to deliver some of their programs to for example directors but but their investment fund specific programs Yes, indeed. So I uh, work on uh, two programmes for the uh, Institute of Bankers. One, which is an introductory uh, programme for for people coming into the funds industry sort of for the first time. Um, And also, as you say, a programme for uh, more experienced executives uh, in the industry as they transition into a role on an investment fund board or uh, as the director of of a management company. So all of that is setting me up to ask you about kind of your views on the Irish funds industry, because it, it, it was very interesting to to get those views from people who are 
not here in the industry immersed in it, but have a very good view of it from a slight distance, a little bit more of a remove than we sometimes tend to, to, to be and maybe a little bit less emotional about it. So I just wonder, you know, as you look at it as a quasi outsider, what is it that you think that the that the Irish funds industry does does well, and, and what is it that you think are the challenges into the future? Yeah, um, it, I mean, Ireland's had some great successes over the the last um, decades, if you like, and you would call out, I guess, particularly the uh, the ETF, so the exchange traded fund and the money market fund sectors. I think as two particular successes for Ireland from a, from a cross border perspective. Clearly, Ireland is alongside Luxembourg, you know, one of the the, the two main cross border centres for for UCITs and for alternative investment funds. But but I guess you shouldn't rest on your your sort of laurels there. And one of the successes I think with Ireland is its ability to sort of continue to reinvent itself and you know to embrace evolution and development um, in the industry. So um, you know, new new fund types, new asset classes, etc. It's really critical that. I think Ireland is taking that sort of strategic view and thinking, you know, what's the world going to look like in in five years time or 10 years time or, or whatever it may be. And kind of planning and thinking f- for that to uh, to stay abreast of what is inevitably uh, an ongoing evolution in the funds industry. Yeah, I think abs- you're absolutely right, Charles, because complacency is, a, is an enemy here. There are certainly other jurisdictions that would be more than happy to uh, eat our lunch and try and replicate the success that we've had and do better again given the opportunity. So I think it is important that we keep our eyes open to understand what it is that we have done well, what it is that we haven't done well and need to do better and keep driving forward into the future and not rest in our laurels. Indeed. And uh, you wouldn't want the jurisdiction to eat your dinner and breakfast as well as your lunch, Danny. So I couldn't agree with, uh, we, you know, with that, with that uh, anymore. And clearly, you know, the Irish government and indeed the central bank, I know, uh, are constantly thinking about, you know, what the future looks like and how they can evolve their approach and uh, and how Ireland as a jurisdiction can, you know, adapt and evolve uh, it, its approach. So the Department of Finance's Fund Sector 2030 review is, I guess, a, a real part of that strategy building and looking forward to what the next few years hold for the industry here and, and more broadly to try and anticipate where the developments might be, where the opportunities might be, and position Ireland to take advantage of those opportunities. So I guess as a as a general concept, undertaking that piece of work is timely and a very good idea. Yeah, indeed. I think it's important for two reasons. Firstly, you know, in an Irish specific context, really playing forward to 2030 and imagining what the world would look like then. But in a broader EU context, I think that's critical as well. You know, we've had the recent release of the uh, the retail investment strategy, for example, by the European Commission, and that will be playing out as 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 we know over the coming period. And it's really important for Ireland to take a, account of that broader EU context and potentially to also influence some of the direction of travel uh, at EU level, which inevitably then uh, will flow back in terms of the the evolution of the EU framework, which you know Ireland will obviously implement by by as a as, as a member state. So I think there's a sort of there's a couple of tracks there uh, at a strategic level for the for the 2030 review, which which are really important. And I think you can kind of anticipate where some of the outputs of that review will be. I'm sure they're I know they're going to focus on studying the impact of the industry as it stands in terms of revenue generation, job growth. Uh, and then they look at, I guess, more broadly, how stakeholders engage with the various uh, organizations, maybe particularly the central bank, and and how that can work better so that we're all kind of sharing information and pulling in the same direction, albeit that 
different industry players and stakeholders have different priorities. But I just wondered if we think a little bit more creatively about what the future might hold and what the world might look like in 2030 with your blockchain.com hat on, knowing you know a good understanding of the digitalization projects that are ongoing. What are the more kind of advanced things that we might see when we get to 2030 and how realistic are they and what what would it be that Ireland would do to kind of align itself for those? Well, I think we can be fairly clear that, that the world is going to look a lot more digital in, in 2030. And there are, I think, two or three ways in which that more digital could play into the uh, to, into the fund space. Um, and maybe we can spend a bit of time talking about each of these sort of areas. There's quite a buzzword around tokenization. You hear this referred to uh, in a number of different contexts, but that's certainly relevant, I think, for, for the fund space, whether whether we're going to see more tokenization of funds and we can talk about about what that means and what the, the implications are. The second is potentially greater use of distributed ledger technology. And there's considerable potential potential there thinking about sort of fund operations and fund administration. We already see some of this development, you know, what that means. And then, you know, will we see more investment by funds into, for example, tokenized securities, into to various digital assets? And what does that mean from a sort of investment piece? So I think you've got this sort of operations uh, component to it and the and the investment component as well. Uh, really important that Ireland positions itself in terms of the skills and how it supports that sort of ecosystem to take advantage of those potential opportunities. So I don't know where you want to start with all of that, Danny, but um, there's kind of lots to talk about in that in that space, potentially. Well, let's jump into tokenization. And I think as we go through all of these three areas, one of the things I think maybe we need to bear in mind is whether these are solutions looking for a problem in some instance, because the tech is there, the possibility to do a lot of things is there, but you see it in other sectors. For example, you see it in shipping where companies have spent a lot of time and effort and money on trying to develop blockchain approaches and DLT for managing supply chains. And then I think the, at the end, they kind of abandon it on the basis that, okay, it would be a bit better, but it's not worth the time and hassle. It's not enough better to make it worthwhile. So let's start with tokenization, what it is, and then would it be enough better uh, for want of a better phrase, to to make it work, the time and effort it would take to put it into place. So, what's tokenization, Giles? Thanks, Danny. Yeah, well, and I agree with you just on the on the point of of looking at this from is this going to make make the world a, a better place, if you like, or make things run more smoothly. So, firstly, yeah, definition. So, tokenization is this concept of creating uh, a virtual token. So um, that's a, a digital representation, so an entry uh, on, on a database it, to really simplify things by means of a smart contract on a blockchain to represent the ownership of an asset. So maybe just to, to sort of break all of that down, because even that's quite a lot, lot to digest. What we're talking about here is uh, really an alternative to the current system that we have, if you like, for recording the ownership of, of a fund. When an investor subscribes to a fund, at the moment, they will get a number of units if it's a unit trust or a number of shares if it is, let's say, a, a an ICAB or a, or a corporate vehicle. And typically, they there will be a unit holder or a shareholder register through so a database that would be maintained to record the, um, you know, the subscription that the investor has made and then their holding of the, of the units or, or the shares in, in a fund. So that's the way 
we kind of record, if you like, investor um, ownership of, of a portion of a fund at the moment. Tokenization is making that digital. It is creating a token. So that, that could be our new name, if you like, for a, for a unit or, or a share. But really the difference here is it's recorded on a, on a blockchain. So on a database that is distributed amongst various different parties rather than sitting, for example, with uh, with a transfer agent or with an administrator, it would be a database that is distributed to the various parties that are involved in the sort of running of, of the fund. But also, uh, because we're talking about smart contracts here, and that's probably something else we need to define um, as well when we talk about those, they are um, really pieces of computer code that can execute when certain events happen. And we can talk about the implication of that, but this is kind of a real digital way of us recording, let's say, the ownership of a, of a portion of a fund when uh, when an investor subscribes. And I know you're about to ask me, well, how is this going to make things probably any better? But I'll, but I'll go back to you and see if you want to ask me that question. <laughs> well, uh, well, I do want to ask you that question, but if we just take a step back before that, so do you, is it envisaged then, Giles, in a tokenized world that the subscription would come into the fund and immediately the token would issue or would shares issue and then tokens issue that represent the shares as well? Well, so this is a this is a really key point. And we, we actually have this issue in the in the securities market, actually, at the moment. So the, the, the terminology here, just to, to also help our listeners with, with that. When we when we talk about issuing um, a share in a conventional sense or, or or a unit, if we tokenize that, so we just create an entry on one of these databases or distributed ledgers, that is really a sort of tokenized security, so a tokenized version of uh, the unit or share. In the future, we might actually see the token created directly or natively, if you like, on the on the on the distributed ledger. So you wouldn't issue the unit or issue the share and then you know create a token of that in the future you could subscribe to an investment fund a record would be would then be created on the ledger to say that you had you've made that subscription and you know the amount that that was and then the token is kind of issued if you like and by issued we mean there is a, a record then created on the distributed ledger and and then you are then the you know the owner of that token so there are kind of a couple of ways you can you can do this depending on whether you're you know really moving on to the architecture and the and the ledger or you're you're trying to tokenize kind of existing units or or shares and what do you anticipate would be the the kinds of rules that would be written into the smart contract that would sit with that token would they be what we typically see in your subscription and redemption procedures so provided it's received by this time and then the valuation is made it will issue a, or the token will issue at a certain price is that the kind of thing that would be covered in a, in the smart contract? Yeah, but potentially it could be, but there's a couple of other comments just to add to that. You know, it's possible for us to, using distributed ledgers, to uh, achieve what's called atomic settlement, which is really effectively where um, when the token is, is created, it, it kind of settles in, in real time, if you like, or, or near to that. So you may not see the, the current model of where you have, you know, periods of subscription, you have a kind of dealing or, you know, a cutoff point. And then you get the, you know, the price and uh, and the unit or the share at some point in the future. This could could make that process pretty much um, kind of instantaneous. We, in terms of the rules, we already see uh, a European level some uh, efforts to develop some sort of regulatory framework around this. 
And there was something called the Pilot Distributed Leisure Technology Regime, which is actually trying to do that for um, for some of the market infrastructure. So there's already some sort of thought about how some of the regulations would work and then how some of the, the sort of smart contracts would work as well. And so what would be the benefits then in a tokenized world or where, where units are issued as tokens as opposed to units or shares? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of critical critical issue. And there are um, really a couple of main main benefits uh, that you would see. Firstly, um, because we're talking about a, a distributed ledger, so that is a, a database that is a copy of which is held by a number of different parties. So in a, in a funds context, that would be, let's say, the management company or the, or the administrator or the transfer agent or the depository, et cetera, would all have a copy of that um, distributed database, the, the distributed ledger. Uh, and that means you don't have what can be quite an inefficient sort of information flow challenge at the moment where, you know, one party in the chain passes information to another party who then passes it to a, to a third party and then a fourth party and so on. You have the ability for all of the, the parties involved in the administration and the, the operation of the, the fund to have in, in a pretty much real time the single sort of version of truth. So, you know, perhaps the distributed ledger recording all of the investors that have subscribed to that fund. So the potential for sort of operational efficiency there, pretty clear to see uh, just the. the, the but Giles, of- Giles, where does the, the fax subscription application form fit in? Well, the because we don't um, we don't use bits of paper very often, kind of now, and and I guess that's the other benefit of automation is if you're subscribing digitally, so on an app or kind of online, um, you can automate and just integrate all of that process, you know, with relatively kind of limited human intervention that that you know that's needed. So it kind of makes that digital subscription model uh, so much more efficient and and potentially cheaper, and you know, and faster for for investors. And is the technology to do this well advanced or is this a, a long way away? If the will was there and the market need was there, would it be hard to actually deliver this? So the, the technology is is there and there have been several you know, initiatives actually in, in Ireland and Luxembourg and elsewhere to, to develop sort of pilots of this and prototypes of it. And, and that those are, are very much up and running and, and in very sort of advanced stages. So the technology certainly is is there. Uh, it's a it's a question, I think, more of sort of the transition moving from the current infrastructure to this to this new infrastructure, which is which is probably the challenge rather than, uh, you know, is this technologically possible, which it absolutely is. And then if we move on then and talk about DLT use more broadly and the efficiencies that that could bring, if that was one of the other streams that we saw pushed towards 2030, what are the kind of initiatives that you see where distributed ledger technology or blockchain might be used to to make the, the funds process that bit easier? Yeah, and I think I think it's really extrapolating what we were we were sort of talking about with let's say this subscription and redemption process, sort of more broadly to all other aspects of of the management sort of operation, you know, administration of uh, of funds. So you know, even on the investment side, and um, the ability to sort of use a distributed ledger potentially to share investment information, to maintain information of that of that sort. Again, the ability to share across. The various different parties, uh, the funds industry is, you know, uh, has an outsourced model, and therefore there are lots of different parties within the the structure of, of a fund involved in various different sort of activities. So it's really broadening, you know, that that use out and sharing information. 
We haven't even got on to issues, you know, such as the way in which, let's say, reg tech, so uh, compliance, for example, is is developing there. And you'll even see regulators uh, thinking about some of these these issues and how they can use distributed ledgers, you know, for things like reporting and data analytics and alike. So there's just a whole sort of range of potential use cases here to to really make some of that back end process a lot more efficient than it is today. And so presumably, if you had regulators like the central bank or at European level, ESMA, who had direct access to these blockchains, whether they were the investor token blockchains or the portfolio blockchains, that gives them instant access to live information on who the investors are or what the portfolio is holding. And if they're trying to do analysis on whatever the next crisis is and what exposure funds have to Russian bonds or what the impact of a COVID pandemic might be, gives them great access to live data to help them form views on where the risks might be. Yeah, uh, that's right. And we probably shouldn't get into the the sort of broader discussion about whether it's a good thing for investors, for regulators to have access to that that information in in sort of real time. Uh, Parking kind of that issue, absolutely. So if you think about uh, regulatory reporting at the moment, this concept of, you know, providing periodic reports to your, your supervisor that then, you know, files that away or sort of analyzes that. This provides if the regulator had basically a node, so, you know, a, a computer that is maintaining a copy of that distributed ledger and um, they would have that that real time access. You could also see that, for example, with auditors. So at the moment, there is a big you know, year end audit process that happens for, for investment funds and for companies. Uh, if the auditor had, I guess, real time access throughout the course of the year to various information and transactions that the fund was doing and, and was able to sort of sign off and, and work through those um, from an audit perspective, it would potentially eliminate the need for any sort of year end uh, audit process because you, you've sort of done the reconciliation and the audit, audit work in real time throughout the course of a year. Now, that's real kind of fanciful stuff at the moment. But, you know, the technology, I, I guess, at least offers the potential for that to happen uh, in the future. And that's that's really sort of game changing from a number of, uh, of perspectives. And then moving on to, I guess, maybe the other side of the coin, which is the, the possibility for funds to invest in tokenized securities or something that, that has come up before and there has been interest in is investment in crypto assets and digital assets and things like cryptocurrencies. That interest ebbs and flows depending on a lot of things like the price of Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin's up 80% this year, so we might see that the uh, interest starts to flow again. But that's probably another aspect that could be part of this 2030 review, how funds might invest in and get access to digital assets, whether they're tokens or cryptocurrencies. Yeah, indeed. I, I think it, it, it's critical, actually, the 2030 review You know, really, really focuses on, on the potential for this. And just to separate out the two pieces of this, the, the broader question about investment in tokenized securities, so that's where we, where we have, let's say, a share or a bond that has been, uh, a token has been created uh, from that versus where we have, you know, potentially in the future companies that are raising finance by issuing securities tokens directly on a distributed ledger. The EU legislation that I mentioned earlier, the uh, distributed ledger technology pilot regime, the DLT pilot, is just the first step uh, in creating the legal framework to allow some of the financial market infrastructures like the stock exchanges and alike to use DLT, distributed ledger technology, 
So that's, you know, real potential for, for funds to be able to invest in those sort of tokenized securities or securities tokens uh, a lot cheaper than they currently do. And potentially uh, there's some liquidity benefits from, from that as well. So that's one side of the coin that's on the sort of securities piece. On the digital assets and the crypto piece, it's sort of the other side of the coin. We do see sort of growing interest from funds, particularly professional uh, investor funds. So, you know, alternative investment funds, for instance, to get exposure to, uh, to digital assets. And there is a fairly limited ability, although still some ability uh, for certain fund structures in, in Ireland and Luxembourg and elsewhere, actually, for, for that exposure to, to be got. We haven't seen that at the moment, for example, for USITs. We haven't seen regulators become comfortable enough with issues like safekeeping and custody or valuation um, to really permit uh, exposure for, for, let's say, the USIT structure into crypto assets. There is a big increase in, uh, in interest in creating, for example, uh, exchange-traded funds that are investing in the, the spot market for crypto. So, for example, spot uh, Bitcoin, and that's predominantly, uh, I think, in the US at the moment. But we, uh, I, I suspect we will have that sort of discussion uh, in Europe because most exchange-traded funds are um, authorised under the usage framework at the moment. So that, that will raise its own sort of issues. But we are you know, seeing the interest only sort of go one way on this. But I agree with you that, that the interest sort of ebbs and flows over time, depending on sort of what's happening more, more broadly in the, in the markets. So just one question to wrap up, Giles, because it's been a very interesting conversation got into some of the detail of what the more digitalized opportunities are into the future. But as you think with your ex-regulator hat on and knowing a little bit about what the technology offers, how to regulate a world where blockchain exists and decentralization is the way that firms operate or, or groups operate? Because traditionally, in terms of regulation of financial services, you're effectively regulating the individuals who run the business and making sure you can get your hands around their neck if something goes wrong or if you, you need to hold somebody to account. But in a more digitalized world where you have decentralization and you have contracts that are programmed, that's not necessarily possible and maybe not the right approach. How do you see that tension kind of playing out or, or is there a resolution to it? Do you just still have to identify who the programmer is and hold them to account? Yeah, and this this is a, an issue I think that cuts across what we call decentralized finance or, or, or DeFi uh, for short. Where, as you say, there isn't in the the entity uh, or, the, or the individual in the kind of center that we see in a more traditional financial sense. There's been a lot of you know litigation in this space already on the on the, on the question of do you hold let's say a programmer that has created basically a protocol, you know, or a smart contract, do you hold that that individual um, account? Would, would they be deemed to be sort of, for want of a better word, providing some sort of regulatory um, service or service that, that needs to be, uh, or activity that needs to be regulated? Then there is the, I think, the broader question around, you know, what, what should an investor, particularly a retail investor, uh, what should they, they understand in terms of, of the risks and and also, how do we or should we indeed treat this differently to the traditional finance sector? Should should many of the similar same aspects that we uh, we talk about in let's say fund investing at the moment, you know, investors understanding um, the risk and return profile of the funds, understanding uh, the various risks they're exposed to? For, for me, it, it sounds to me, or it seems to me, we've got to go through a similar sort of process with with, with this. So, although this is a different asset class or a different sort of way um, in which an investor might be engaging in the financial system. I think the same sort of principles that we would apply 
um, traditionally should be applied here. So uh, looking at what investor disclosure should be made uh, and what additional protection should be provided. So it's a really, really fascinating area. I'd, I'd recommend looking at a report that uh, the European Parliament has just um, published uh, just a couple of weeks back, which explores actually a lot of these um, kind of questions in playing forward and thinking how decentralised finance sectors should be regulated. Great. Very interesting and plenty of food for thought there. So thanks very much for those observations, Giles. We certainly, as the department and the various stakeholders work through the 2030 review and will, I guess, cover the ground that we expect, hope that they'll be broad-minded enough to to see uh, a little bit further down the tracks of some of the more exciting and and further off developments, but see how we can maybe harness them, uh, keep the industry here alive and kicking. So thanks very much, Giles. Thanks for having me, Danny. I've I've enjoyed it immensely. Great. We'll catch you next time on the Equest Podcast. The Equest Podcast. Funds industry conversations.